0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel. We tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets. Here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. I'm joined by my co-host, Senior Economist to WisdomTree and Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. We also have my Global Head of Research, Christopher Gennady, joining us to co-host our, our episode today. Uh, please note, Chris and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or, or sale of any investment products. The views or guests are their own and not those of the affiliates. Professor, we've got some good economic data on the tape. We've got the bond market reacting. Uh, we've got some of the equities coming in response to all that. We're curious to get your take on
2: all the data you're seeing. Yeah, uh, I like this morning. Um, as you know, um, the data had been coming in and for two weeks, pretty weak on the weakish side, again, not Recession, but weak. Uh, um, yesterday, when I saw the jobless uh, claims stay basically unchanged, I said, "Okay, that looks like the labor market's holding." And definitely, when we saw it today, the mo- the labor market is holding. This was this was a good report, actually, um, pretty much in line with expectations, except for the unemployment rate uh, down three nine three seven. Now, I <clears throat> I think that that's the reason why we got yield jumps. I'll tell you why. Um, uh, 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 there would be more pressure on Jay Powell if the unemployment rate rose to four percent or above, um, and then three nine. Of course, there was a possibility of it doing so. As long as he can keep it under four percent, it gives him cover if he wants to to keep rates higher for longer. Now, again, I think he should be lowering rates because I think inflation's coming in very well. By the way. You know, I mean, four tenths, uh, you know, year over year, earnings of four percent, given that productivity has been up so much this year, is not an inflationary uh, number. In fact, unit labor costs are negative this year. So I don't regard anything here on the labor front uh, at all uh, as being uh, inflationary. I like the labor participation rate. It ticked up one tenth. The household report was very strong. Um, I think up about 700000 reversing uh, some of the losses that we saw in the previous month. Of course, it is much more volatile um, uh, because of the sample size being much smaller than uh, the uh, uh, estimate report that we have here. Um, we also you know, had a uh, reduction in the U6 uh, unemployment rate um, down to 7% from 7.2%. A uh, lot to like. And by the way, just an hour and a half later, We had some really good numbers. Um, uh, 69 is expected, 62 expectations, and particularly that inflation number, which uh, was uh, 4.3% on the one year has dropped to 3.1. That's one of the biggest one-month drops I have ever seen, the five-year dropping from 3.1 to 2.8. Um, uh, this is also very, very good news. Now, again, let's talk about next week. We have a lot to report. Normally, the week after the the employment report is a pretty dead week, but because the employment report is coming in uh, so late uh, 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 this this month, we have the CPI coming in on Tuesday. We have the PPI coming in on Wednesday. And, of course, the Fed decision coming on Wednesday. Let me give you a preview of that. Um, um first of all, the CPI and PPI will have no impact on what decision decisions made there will be no change. It also have no impact on the dot pot, which will come out because the dot pot has to be submitted before those numbers come out. So uh um uh the, these numbers will be will not be either the dot pot or the decision uh, by the Fed. Uh, I expect the dot pot to still be pretty hawkish. We know the Fed funds predicts maybe three to four drops in rates, quarter point rates before the end of the year. I expect there not to be that by the dot pot. But one has to remember, <laughs> again, that three months ago they predicted a rise in rates, uh, majority uh, predicted a rise in rates by December, and we're not having it. So, uh, you know, don't put too much credence at all in one year ahead forecasts of the FOMC, they will be pretty hawkish, I believe. I believe that Powell will be too, you know, will say uh, we're still ready if, if the inflation data comes in bad. And, of course, he will have inflation data on, on CPI and PPI for the narrative when he gets up before uh, the groups on, um, um, on, on Wednesday talking about uh, uh, the that. So he will put that in still optionality on raising rates, uh, but the data itself, to me, taking a look at commodity prices, oil prices, and everything else, does not look like inflationary pressures are at all uh, sufficient to justify any further increase um, in the uh, Fed funds rate.
1: And so as you think ahead to next year, I know you've said the Fed being stubborn is one of your great risks. Um, you came into this year... Very bullish, you've been proven right. I mean, you had said we could get a 15% move in the markets. You have got more than that in the S&P. How do you think about yeah. the potential for next year, based on all that you're seeing, the risks, the and the drivers?
2: Well, if I yeah, no, let me tell you, give you an estimate. If if he's real stubborn and doesn't lower rates because he wants to squeeze out every bit of inflation, I would uh, I I think we're not going to have a great equity market uh, in the first half of the year. Although I don't think it's going to be terrible, uh, you know, for zero to minus ten percent maybe from current levels. Um and I think the second half will be much better. Uh because uh, you know, he'll 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 begin to get the message that, you know, you can't keep pet funds rate at five and the third one, the the long bonds at four. Um if he begins to become very two sided and says, I think I've done enough on inflation and we start moving down in the first half, we'll have a rally in the first half, and I think next year can be another 10 to 15 percent year, um, given what I see on earnings and everything else. I think I think the market is poised very very well. I like the technicals of the market right now. Um, I think we can I, I think we're going to have a higher December, very honestly, um, and I think that's going to extend into next year. Um, uh, only if the data starts coming in weak, and he remains stubborn, will that rally snuff out in my opinion. So I do look for an increase, again, uh, in uh, stock returns, um, a decent, quite decent increase of, uh, you know, maybe in in the 10% range or so, and maybe more balanced between the so-called magnificent seven and the small and mid-cap stocks, certainly, than it, it was in 2023. You mentioned the productivity data coming
1: in good. That was one of the other reports this week. Is that something you expect next year? We're going to continue with all this uh, the more positive productivity data?
2: Absolutely. And I think AI, as you mentioned, will feed into that. I think firms will learn how to use AI. We could see AI, I think, uh, increase real growth rates over the next three to five years, anywhere from a half to three quarters of a percent per year. Um and that's positive for equities. Um, so um, I, I do expect productivity versus continue the bounce back from the dismal 2022. Um, and I expect it to be actually spurred on by AI developments uh, in addition. So, uh, um, you know, both those factors, I think, will cause an increase in um, um, uh, stock prices. Well, Professor, very
1: good. Thank you so much for kicking us off the show. Look forward to getting your reaction to all the big events uh,
2: next week. Yeah, the FOMC and Inflation Report flats. That's the talk about a week from today.
1: Thank you so much. We'll talk again uh, soon. I'm going to turn my conversation over. We have, again, Chris Gennady, Global Head of Research with Wisdom Tree, joining me with Uma Moriarty, who's uh, a, a, a specialist at Center Square Investment Management. We have actually licensed It's a center square index for one of our modern economy ETFs for focus on the real estate sector. Uma, is her firm is uh, a Philadelphia-based expert on all things real estate. Uma, welcome to Behind the Markets.
0: Thanks for having me, Jeremy.
1: So tell our listeners, you know, you you heard a little bit of the professor's outlook. When you think about all these factors that are impacting real estate, it's been one of those places at the center of the storm of higher rates. We're going to talk all... All the different factors but give us your outlook for these these key things of what drives real estate pricing and your views on them
0: yeah and i i think i agree with a lot of what was said right i as it relates to the impact that we've seen across the real estate market which has really been driven by what's happened on the interest rate side of the equation across the economy We do anticipate that rates will be higher for longer. I think we've really stepped out of an environment over the last, call it, five to 10 years where you had interest rates at really low levels, which drove pricing for real estate down um, pretty meaningfully. And from a cap rate perspective, right, when I say lower, we were talking about yields for real estate compared to yields across, um, across the fixed income space. But as we have this new resetting of the debt environment, we do think that the 10-year yield probably lands somewhere closer to the 4% range when all is said and done, and that requires a bit of a repricing from a real estate perspective. We do think that repricing has happened across the public markets, um, so across the REITs pretty much globally, but we have not yet seen that happen In a meaningful way across the private market. So, we do think as we look into next year, we're going to continue seeing a resetting of valuations across the private market, which is a great thing for people looking to deploy fresh capital. Into next year, right? You're getting to be able to invest at a reset basis, and then as we think about the opportunity set more broadly, that has already kind of happened across the across the public markets that have taken on a lot of the pain over the call, call the last 18 months associated with rising rates. And so, um, a little bit of tale of two cities here in terms of what the outlook looks like for public versus private real estate.
1: You think about your home price, and it doesn't. You don't get a. I guess you can get an estimate on Zillow or Redfin or these sort of public services that gives you a the, the real time markings there. But you don't. You don't see real time markings like you do in stock prices and reefs that are trading every day, where, where you can see that adjustment. But I, there is some of these, you know, concerns in the banking industry about all the loans they do to real estate and, and that private market in some ways. Is is that a concern you think people should have about banks, all the lending they do to real estate and the big offices or anything there that, that you think will get affected in these private market pricings?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the debt environment is really going to be the driver for a lot of the resetting that we need to see across the private market. Um, you've probably heard if if not, there is, you know, this wall of maturities of real estate debt expiring over the next um, couple of years at elevated levels compared to what we normally see. And we were expecting some of that to even play out this year in 2023. But what we've seen is a lot of banks kind of extending and pretending, right? So you're seeing banks saying, okay, we'll just give you a little bit more time to kind of pay off your loan, maybe you put in some fresh equity, we'll keep the rates the same. So there's a lot of banks working with their borrowers to try and figure out ways to to get through to the other side of this interest rate environment. Um, That being said, there are some issues that are more structural in nature, right? You mentioned office. Um, There are going to be office loans that just aren't going to make sense because you're going to have some issues with the asset itself, there's a difference between that situation versus a situation where you have an asset, for example, call it a multifamily asset that is still performing, but you just have to kind of reconfigure some of, the, some of the financing associated with that to make sense in a new higher interest rate environment. But you still have cash flows coming into that asset. The asset is still occupied. It's still performing, right? Very different situation compared to a low quality, you know, secondary tertiary market type of an office asset that might be sitting call it half vacant today and the outlook doesn't look much better right as these leases start rolling the the occupancy levels of these assets might continue to decrease and so there you have a much more structural much more of a functional issue within that asset so i think in terms of the real estate debt outstanding you will have a little bit of a bifurcation associated with assets that are still strong and performing assets where you're able to kind of get through to the other side versus other types of assets that might have some more structural and functional issues ahead.
1: Now, I mentioned, um, you know, one of the ways we think of, you know, we've licensed one of your indexes focused on the modern economy. Um, when you think about real estate applied to the modern economy, what does that mean to, to center square?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I'll I'll start maybe with the most obvious here in terms of AI, right? Okay, um you, you heard about the impact that AI might have in terms of productivity for the economy. AI functionally, right, in order to generate these large language models that we're getting so much traction on and hearing so much about across industries, you have to train those large language models and then deploy those large language models. All of that computing that's required there happens at a data center. Data centers are a meaningful part of the listed real estate universe. Um, And that's an area that we are really bullish on. And we see a lot of runway for growth in, in in the future. And maybe just to kind of take a step back, right? So there's, when we think about AI and what that means over time, you first have to train that AI, like I mentioned, right? So that training is going to happen potentially in some of these uh, maybe secondary or tertiary markets where you're not really worried as much about latency, but you're really just trying to develop and train this large language model. Um, So we're, we're seeing a decent amount of demand for that type of product from a data center perspective, in secondary or tertiary markets where you have land availability, where you have access to power, for example, a lot of power required to really, you know, compute this amount of information and data within these data centers. Um, So you'll think about markets like maybe Ohio, where you have a new Intel manufacturing facility going in, right? And then you can have potentially some new data centers that are popping up there to deploy some of those chips that are being developed and produced in this Intel facility to then go into these data centers, help generate these large language models, help train these large language models. Those That that AI, once it's been trained up, will then go into data centers that are much more network dense and have a lot of co-location. So when I say that, I'm talking about, you know, call it your, your various cloud providers are in the same data center as... All the different apps, maybe, that are using this data. Um, and these network dense data centers tend to be in primary markets for data centers, areas like Northern Virginia, the Bay Area, et cetera. Um, you want to be close to your end consumer. You're, you're thinking about things like reducing latency. So you want to be as close to kind of that end user as possible. And in those types of primary markets, Um, The REITs that own data centers have really a strong network that's been developed. Um, And so, those are areas where you're continuing to see a lot of demand, demand that's growing. At the same time, there is a lack of power availability in those markets. And so, you have this phenomenon, if we go back to kind of Econ 101, from a real estate perspective of rising demand restricted supply and so you're seeing a lot of pricing power and so we think that's going to be an area that will continue to benefit from from the kind of this proliferation of ai
1: that uh, that is definitely the key focus and I'll bring Chris here in one second I know he's chomping with uh, this discussion here, but you know the with So much excitement, and again, even just overnight, we saw news of Gemini from Google come out and sort of trying to compete with ChatGPT. Everybody's excited. You've got Grok from Twitter and X, at Elon's platform, coming out with their own AI models. Everybody's launching these AI models, and all right, so this excitement does it lead to pushing up prices? There was a famous short seller, Jim Chanos, who actually I think just closed his funds, and he was sort of famously short some of these data centers, presumably on a valuation concern, but how do you think about the valuations versus growth rates in this sector that is the prime topic of the day?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we have um seen some strong performance out of these out of these REITs that are focused in data centers precisely for this for this question, right? Um, that being said, if you compare the performance of the REITs here to some of the tech companies that are involved in this very different situation they have not outperformed and run nearly as much as some of these other tech companies um, and if you think about kind of the fundamentals that drive some of the impacts from a real estate perspective right you're talking about things like land availability or scarcity these REITs that have already developed data centers and developed those high network dense types of properties there is a very significant moat around those types of assets. Those are irreplaceable assets. It takes years and years and years to develop the density within some of these assets. And you'll only really find one or maybe two of these assets per market. Once you have that network-dense asset, you can't really create a new one. And so they have a really strong moat around their existing platform. The other thing that I'll say is that if you think about these um, these data center REITs that have global platforms. That platform value is really really incredible, and it's not only just associated with AI, but just the general digitalization of the global economy that we're seeing in terms of the growth in cloud computing and and all of that. Right, it's it's become one of these must haves for any company is thinking about how you're integrating data and management and computing to make yourself more efficient. Um, and these global platforms that the REITs offer are are really, really phenomenal, whereby a company like a Microsoft can go to one of these companies and say, hey, you know, we need capacity to deploy across these five or six markets. And you can go to one platform and have that type of a solution. And so these, these REITs, in addition to having just irreplaceable assets, have really, really strong platforms that are global in nature that have the capacity to really get on, um, you know, develop these relationships with cloud providers, et cetera, as, as, as data continues to grow and proliferate in our everyday lives.
3: And I, and I know it's, uh, it's probably difficult because uh, many of us naturally see the news on something like Gemini. We see the news on the cloud providers. Uh, we'll think of 2023 as the year really of NVIDIA. But uh, I, I was before this conversation just looking on various sources and I saw a headline. So if you, if you look for it, you do see real estate headlines Blackstone Digital Realty team up to develop $7 billion in data centers. So stuff is happening. And, and Uma, I, I believe I remember looking up at one point. The ability of Equinix, uh, another player in the space, to increase uh, the—I think it was the earnings per share, if I'm not mistaken—a lot of quarters in a row, possibly more than 40 quarters in a row. And one thing I was curious about is we were talking as you were going through your remarks about supply. When you think of the rates that these players are able to charge the tenants and the tenants, I tend to think of the tenants as those people who are buying the NVIDIA chips that we're hearing about all the time. They need to put those ships somewhere. They're putting them in these data centers. But are the rates that are being charged to the people using the data centers, are they going up with inflation? Or are they going up more than inflation to sort of reflect the fact that there is this limited supply? And you imagine it's only getting more valuable as we as a society just put more and more and more data through these pipes.
0: Yeah. So we are seeing strong rental rate growth and organic rate growth for these data centers. And I will say that's happening for the first time in a long time. Something else to know with these data centers is that, you know, if you think about the rate at which technology continues to improve, right, all these new chips that NVIDIA is producing, the efficiency of these chips continues to increase. And in order to actually power these new chips, you need an increased amount of power. The the technology itself is rapidly changing. And so you've seen data centers also evolve over time to accommodate for this change in technology. Because of that, you've consistently seen additional data center space come to the market that has kept rate growth pretty muted in the past. Today, what we're experiencing is this massive increase in demand and supply that just cannot keep pace with it because Functionally, in these core top tier markets, you just do not have the infrastructure built out for enough power to be coming to these data centers fast enough to satisfy the level of growth in demand. And so, because of that structural impediment for new supply, you are seeing rate growth. In these data centers, unlike the data center space has seen in the last 20-25 years, right? So that is a very different story today than it has been even five years ago, where you were see you were able to see supply kind of keep pace with demand. Completely different picture today.
3: And, and I know I, I admit uh, being based in the U.S., I pay a lot of attention to the U.S., and I know there are some uh, some big locations like in uh, Virginia near Washington D.C. But was, was just curious to get. Your perspective on anything you might have seen or CenterScore might have seen on on data centers outside the U.S., uh, similar types uh, of trends, utilization, maybe even more utilization, just to, you know, recognize that when when we're looking at the space and and when we're thinking of the strategy, we are applying a, a global perspective. It's certainly not U.S. only.
0: Absolutely. We are seeing an increased need for data centers and an increased desire to deploy capital across the data center real estate space globally. Um, That's a phenomenon that's happening across some major markets in Europe. You mentioned the Blackstone deal that included some markets in Europe as well. You are seeing a lot of um, need for data centers and deployment of capital across the Asia Pacific region as well. Um, definitely not something that is limited to the U.S. As you mentioned, it is a global phenomenon. As we are seeing, kind of this digitalization, like I mentioned, of the global economy, where you're just in, you're seeing the increase in the usage of data um, in a, in a pretty meaningful way across the world. Um, if you think about even just you know. The amount of YouTube streaming or Netflix or whatever it may be, just the streaming of data and content, the access to it across our smartphones. I mean, all of this data generation and 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 data transportation and computing that is required is growing at, at really meaningful and exponential rates here at this point. Um, and, and we just need more data centers to keep pace with that.
1: Uh, not not surprising, Chris and I think alike, and I was I was starting to think about this international opportunity and just to to, to expand on that for a moment, is you know, we, we in the in the public broad equity markets, we don't have as many big, magnificent seven tech stocks in the US. And so sometimes people look at the SP five hundred biased by these larger tech players, they look at Europe, they look at Japan, these foreign markets are much cheaper, uh, much lower valuations. Does that port over when and you think about real estate. You think about interest rates globally. I think Japan with the lowest rates around the world. Uh, Europe is lower than the U.S., but not you know quite you know they've they've been hiking rates the short end too. How how do valuations around the world compare? How do you think about it for for the opportunities ahead?
0: Yeah, so I think the the discount we are seeing across the U.S. rate market from a valuation perspective, if we compare. REITs to kind of the underlying real estate from a private market lens. um, it's You know, REITs screen cheap kind of across the board, except for a couple markets in Asia Pacific. Like you mentioned, the interest rate environment there is just is is starkly different, right? Um, So markets like Singapore, for example, screen a little bit expensive. But I would say, broadly speaking, across Europe, across the US, um, you are seeing REITs from the listed market perspective at a pretty meaningful discount compared to where you might see those same assets trading and valued in the private market.
1: Are there, so it seems like um, that private market is one of those things you think needs to adjust and and the debt part of it is is where you're focused on that. Um, is there, a catalyst? Is it just the the timeline, the extensions of the timelines? It's all tied to rates and the refinancing of of loans.
0: It really is. I I think that we need to have a bit of a reacceleration also just in the transaction market, right? The issue currently, if you think about transactions across the private market, that by the time you get to due diligence and you go through, learn about the asset, get all the information, talk to a lender, get financing under contract and then you're going back to your investment committee presenting these things. I mean, we're seeing the the rates from a borrowing perspective change so dramatically just over the last call it months, right? We've seen a meaningful shift in the 10 year treasury yield and how lenders are thinking about pricing debt that your transaction it con- if you think about just the economics of of the deal that you're presenting to IC, it's changing week over week pretty meaningfully. And so when you have that sort of an environment, you're kind of just sitting there on the private side with your hands a little bit tied because you don't know where things are shaking out. And so we need a little bit of stability across the debt market for the private market from a transaction perspective to really open up. Once the transactions increase in speed and velocity and volume, you're going to be able to see more comps that allow appraisers on the private side then to mark assets in an appropriate way. And so we just we need a little bit more stability for that transaction market to open up for that to really accelerate in a meaningful way. The other part of that like I mentioned is is the, is the debt, right? As you are seeing banks looking at refinancing loans that are coming due, there will be some new math that has to get applied. To, to these loans that's driven by things like making sure that the loans are meeting any sort of debt service coverage ratio requirements and things like that. And so you end up seeing a bit of a repricing from that perspective as well. So I think you're going to have kind of two pieces that, that deal with the interest rate environment and deal with debt that are going to really help drive a um, repricing across that private market.
1: E-commerce is another part so the move towards Amazon and other uh, delivery-type services versus, you know, going shopping in the stores uh, is obviously one of the big mega trends uh, that we continue to see. Where do you see that? You know, if you put a, a where we are in that transition from traditional shopping towards e-commerce, where are we in that cycle in your view, and and how you think about the logistics companies that that you think are the real estate company opportunities.
0: Yeah, I I think we've kind of watched this evolution of the supply chain to to meet the consumer demand from just a spending habit perspective for a while. That being said, I think there's still a long ways to go, right? So if you think about the, I would say, the gold standard as it relates to having a supply chain that meets the consumer's needs and expectations from an e-commerce perspective – Amazon, right? They've they've got it kind of sort of figured out at this point. It took them over a decade to build a supply chain that is able to deliver goods to their end consumers within a 2-hour time period, which is what which is what we're starting to expect, right? If you from kind of click to delivery, people want ease of this shopping experience. They want to remove a lot of the frictions associated with the time required to actually get your good that you ordered. I mean, to the point where if you think about even, you know, 15, 20 years down the road, what the consumer is going to expect, like kids these days will click, you know, buy now on Amazon or watch their parents do it. And they'll be standing at the door two minutes later being like, when is, when is my package arriving? Right, so as you as we see these consumers that are spending money over time shift more towards kind of that millennial cohort more towards the Gen Zs and even younger, over time, our expectations are going to be to receive our things faster, whenever we want them, wherever we want them. And that requires a pretty meaningful build out of the supply chain. Some of the other things that we've dealt with over the last few years, also think about things like moving into a multipolar world, right? Our reliance on, in the US, our reliance on China or even elsewhere in the world, um, we're seeing this kind of reconfiguration from a nearshoring or onshoring perspective. You're seeing supply chains and trade routes getting rerouted because you're dealing with labor issues at certain ports, or you're dealing with a completely different area in which you're getting, you know, supply from. So maybe you're now shifting some of your manufacturing to Mexico or even the Midwest states in the United States. So we're seeing a lot of reconfiguration of supply chains to really navigate some of the uncertainties that resulted in the supply chain effectively breaking over the last few years. And so the companies that are reliant on moving goods efficiently from point A to point B have learned a lot of lessons in the last few years. And as a result of that, are thinking about retooling their supply chains to build resiliency, to increase inventory, and all of those things requires a logistics real estate network, and so that's the place that we're really focused on to understand okay, how are companies thinking about their needs as it relates to the supply chain of goods, but then also the supply chain of associated with services. And and when I say that, I am talking about things like your HVAC repairman or or your you know your um, contractors that might be working on the the renovations that you're doing in your home, they also utilize industrial spaces, and those industrial spaces tend to be in really infill locations. and um, so you want to make sure that you're closest to the consumers that you're serving as well. And so when we think about kind of the supply chain of of goods and services, where it needs to be for it to be most functional. Um, and, and so we're we're very highly convicted in kind of this industrial build out as well as we think about what's coming down the pike for for real estate.
3: Uma, I was curious to hear sort of how Center Square weights some of the different attributes when thinking about these uh, sort of industrial e-commerce oriented sites in the sense that you imagine as an outsider looking in, inside these warehouses, there must be incredible amounts of technology, maybe even AI, certain types of robotics, doing things faster and faster, less and less people to you know, minimize the the chances of getting hurt or those horror stories that you hear about at certain times in the year with Amazon. Or is it a case where it's actually more important to think about Yes, uh, I I think I I heard it from Center Square, this idea of smaller footprints per warehouse, but many, many more warehouses. So almost a different way of looking at it uh, closer to those end delivery points, because it feels like if everybody works together and the technologies converge, maybe one of the things that happens is you ultimately end up with some form of drone delivery or autonomous driving delivery for that, you know, quote unquote, last mile between that small distribution center and the actual client. So I know that there's a very interesting sort of intersection between the ways in which you evaluate the technology and the ways in which you evaluate uh, the locations.
0: Absolutely. And I think the amount of uh, capital that you're seeing deployed across technology solutions in the supply chain space phenomenal. There are some really, really interesting and unique solutions that are coming out of a lot of work that's being put into this. Um, as it stands today, those technology solutions don't necessarily exist, right, at scale, but they're getting there. We're working on finding ways to make this a much more efficient process, um, whether it's driverless vehicles, as you mentioned, right? So, it's if you think about the overall supply chain, about 5% of that cost is associated with the rent for the spaces that you're occupying. The other 95%, a large part of it, is transportation and labor. And so if you think about companies that are really trying to make their supply chains more efficient from a cost perspective, they're really trying to reduce their transportation costs. That's one of those big things. And so one of the reasons why we're so bullish on industrial spaces and infill locations, and when I say infill, I'm talking closest to that end consumer is because those infill locations allow you to minimize your last mile transportation cost to your end consumer. And that is such a large part of the current cost structure for supply chains. that that's where you're seeing a lot of deployment across these the, across the supply chain build out. Um, so we feel really strongly about that. Um, the other thing that I will say also in some of those infill markets, again, st- taking a step back and thinking from a real estate fundamental perspective and you think about supply and demand the what I just mentioned is, is a big reason as to why we're seeing an increased level of demand for these infill types of logistics and distribution warehouse spaces. And on the other side, we're continuing to see that supply in infill submarkets actually decrease. You're seeing a lot of these logistics and industrial types of spaces in infill submarkets get demolished and reconfigured into multifamily or some other higher and better use. And so over time, the supply picture is actually seeing, you know, some of the space being taken out. So you're seeing negative supply, positive demand, so really strong pricing power. And so these are the types of things that we think about in terms of, okay, what are structural demand drivers that are increasing demand? And mixing that in with areas where we see fundamental, uh, you know, supply restrictions effectively to create this, I would say, asymmetric payoff from a real estate perspective, where you have a a much stronger upside potential driven by these fundamentals of higher supply, I mean, um, higher demand and lower supply.
3: I also speak, speaking of uh, an interesting way in which existing supply is being used. Uh, I saw an article uh, come out in this week's Economist that was basically discussing life sciences. So one one of Jeremy and I's uh, contrarian ideas potentially for 2024 is uh, the fact that biotechnology has been underperforming. Uh, as almost every other thematic investment for multiple years in a row now, but uh, we we need the advancements, the developments. There have been some articles recently about CRISPR, so uh, the space is certainly still there. And the Economist article was noting that you have this transformation potential of certain types of real estate in cities that might have used to be used for certain types of old school, old style offices, and now you're seeing a bit of transition potentially over to life sciences. And I know that's another growing, important part of what Center Square thinks of as modern economy real estate. So I was, was just curious to hear your perspective on life sciences oriented real estate and, and how that might stack up against whether data centers or uh, modern industrial.
0: Yeah. So life sciences, if we think about it, kind of falls under our healthcare care category um, and requires an incredible amount of innovation and technology that goes into doing this. And if you think about just the fundamental need for additional R&D associated with new tech, new treatments and therapies, there are 10,000 people that are turning 65 every single day in the U.S. alone. If you think about the aging population of the entire world, whether it's across the U.S., whether it's in an economy like Japan, we have this massive demographic wave that is pushing the existing People in this world into an older needs based type of an age where you're going to have a lot more health concerns and health issues that come up. And we need just better and more sophisticated treatments to really deal with this aging population. All of that is happening within life sciences, lab spaces. And so you are continuing to see a decent amount of demand coming through for these types of spaces. Um, I will say that there is a lot of supply that is coming in to meet that demand at the moment, um, which actually creates a really compelling valuation story. I think here for life sciences lab space across the REIT world, um, we've seen these REITs similar to what you've seen across the biotech space, right? Sell off because of some concerns associated with the level of demand, some concerns associated with the level of supply, but as they stand today, the life science lab space REITs are priced at a fairly meaningful discount compared to the underlying real estate, compared to the growth that we think is coming in the demand associated with the need for more life sciences lab space, like I mentioned, to really to, to meet the needs of our aging population. So that's another one of those areas. And if we go back to even thinking about, you know, what AI can do, the impact of artificial intelligence and the way that we can actually develop and accelerate the the positive health outcomes globally is really meaningful. So I think you're going to see a lot more impact from AI really driving better health outcomes, and a lot of that research again, has to happen somewhere. It happens in a real estate space that real estate space is going to be a life sciences lab space. so we feel we feel good about the long term um you know, outlook associated with that with that real estate type as well.
1: Yeah, Chris and I could work from anywhere. We're we're, we're broadcasting here from London, both of us uh, from our hotel rooms. But you know, our work does not need to be in a lab, but those labs yep. uh, do need to be done. So, um, <laughs> yes, we 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 talked some micro level details, Uma, on a few sub themes here from you know the. The data centers to the the e-commerce and logistics industrials and now life sciences. There's a few other sub-themes. but if we stepped back to you know the big picture and as investors thinking about this category, I keep calling it modern economy, but I think your official name is New New Economy Real Estate Index. For the, the broad trend, you know, maybe frame how you think about. I you know people often think about real estate for their dividends, their cash flow, yields, growth valuation change or sort of main drivers of return so how do you think about the metrics overall framing the opportunity today versus some of its averages long-term? Like, what do you think, how do you think about the overall asset class?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that the REIT market and the listed real estate market is in a completely different place compared to what a lot of people might think in terms of private real estate investing, What we have seen in the REIT universe over the last economic cycle is that you've seen this emergence of niche, unique property types and asset classes and platforms, which I think is super important, that really cater to the shifting and evolving ways in which we utilize real estate. If you think about, right, you just mentioned, you can work from anywhere, that that capacity is really facilitated by the fact that we can have this conversation over Microsoft Teams. And that conversation is powered by all the computing that's happening in a data center. However, in order to do this, we today no longer have to be physically present in in an office building in a conference room to have this conversation. So if you think about what the core real estate is, that we really need today in today's economy, it's not the core real estate of 10, 15 years ago where office might have been a key part of what we would consider to be core. That core real estate today really has a lot more things like data centers and towers and life science lab space and cold storage and all these other things that really facilitate the way in which the changing behaviors of people that are facilitated largely by technology, how that's changing the way in which we utilize real estate. And so we spent a lot of time here at Center Square thinking about some of these types of thematics that are really taking shape and how that's driving changes in, in, in the utilization of real estate and what that means for the fundamental valuation associated with real estates. And so office will be a great example of a type of property that we think is in structural decline. Not to say that every single office that asset out there is going to be obsolete and irrelevant. There is going to be a really meaningful bifurcation between the haves and have-nots. And we spend a lot of time figuring out what the haves might be. Um, similarly, as we think about these trends that we've talked about, whether it's the proliferation of AI or the aging population, another one we spent a lot of time thinking about here at Center Square is the lack of housing and the shortage of housing across the space and what that means for the housing market. Why haven't we seen housing prices come down when we've seen mortgage rates go from under 3% to 7.5%, 8%, right? Those are the types of things that we spend a lot of time thinking about here at Center Square as we as we look to deploy capital into the real estate that we think is going to be really resilient in, in the future, which is driven by structural demand drivers and really supported by a lack of supply. And so we go, we go back to, you know, e- Econ 101, as we think about the fundamentals of real estate um, and how things like the changing economy, uh, resetting interest rate environment, all of those things are really just, I think, creating kind of a sea change associated with valuation. And we, we look at kind of the intersection of all of those things and, and, and think that the places where there are these structural demand drivers will continue to succeed.
1: It definitely, the real estate market is changing. It's not your, and, and I, I I like your comments on what well, you think office could be structural decline. As uh, so you got to think forward, you have to know who's going to be the winners or so new economy offices are the ones that are, are more likely the survivors. Uh, you factor that in. I mean, Chris and I uh, both are big fans of the index, um, obviously, and we work with you guys. But the, you know, I think the, the The idea of trying to include fundamental scores, valuation scores, growth scores in ranking these opportunities is is something we find uh, attractive for building an index. It also shows how you can be more quantitative in building an index. There's a lot of interesting stuff that people should check out this center square index. Um, Uma, one thing on you know you touched on housing supply and for sort of home price, everybody can relate to this question on either renting or buying a house when when you think about that. Sense is it time to be shopping for a house? Are rates going to come down, bring bringing housing prices down? Two minutes, sort of quick quick view on home prices versus renting. What you think is going on there?
0: You know, I, I if if I have a crystal ball, and this is going to be my personal crystal ball, and who knows who who knows if this is right. But we have this structural undersupply of housing in this current environment, which is because we had just a. I would some some level of PTSD associated with the GFC. Right. So there was just there was not a lot of exuberance around building new housing after the last financial crisis Um, that has been kind of coupled today with this lock in effect where you see existing homes just not hitting the market because nobody wants to give up their really low existing mortgage rate to take on a new mortgage rate at over seven percent. Um, and so you're seeing kind of this lock in effect. And so the, the inventory for homes on the market is just really, really low. Um, home builders really can't keep up with the level of demand there is for, for people looking for houses, because I'm, you know, we talked a little bit about the aging population that's driving demand for the need for things like life sciences. The other side of the spectrum is the aging millennial cohort that is aging into family formation years, they need to go out and find homes and good school districts for their growing families and the existing inventory just does not exist. And so you're seeing this, you know, again, higher demand, not enough supply to meet it. And so it's keeping prices elevated. I think what, you know, from a housing market perspective, hopefully we see some stability across the mortgage um, market as well. We're seeing not only base rates higher, but you're seeing higher spreads. That are driving mortgage rates to the levels that they are at today, and so if you see some stability in the market, you'll see those spreads come down and hopefully create an environment where there is the capacity for people to to come in and and buy new homes at mortgage rates that make a bit more sense for them. Um, but a lot of these millennials, frankly, don't have the savings required for the down payment. You're not seeing prices come down, and so you're seeing you know the the need for these down payments are are pretty high and. I think the average, the last time I checked, the average net worth of a millennial was under $200,000. And that's that's up pretty meaningfully from kind of pre-COVID levels, but that's really driven by millennials who had homes at that point and have seen their home prices appreciate. So pre-COVID, you were looking at average net worth of millennials in the sub-100,000 range. Um, if you're going out there looking for a home in a good place, you're in a, in a good market with a good school district, you're looking at pretty pretty hefty pricing, right? Um, and millennials don't necessarily have the savings required to make the down payments there. And so all these things put together are creating renters for longer. And so rental residential is another part of the real estate market that we're really bullish on right now.
1: Well, Uma, this has been a, a fantastic tour across the real estate. It's been one of the, the prime Subjects. Uh, give us 30 seconds. You also do a podcast front and center where you can keep in touch with Uma's views all the time. What what can people f- expect to listen to on front and center, Uma?
0: Yeah, thank you. So, um, not not so shameless plug here. <laughs> we have weekly conversations with experts and real estate investors across the company. Um, at Center Square, we invest in real estate across listed markets globally, but also across private equity markets, private debt markets and across some strategic capital opportunities as well. And so we have a great conversation every week with folks around the company um, about what we're looking at and and thinking about as it relates to investing in real estate. So definitely tune in.
1: Yeah, we just discovered it. I know Chris uh, consumes more podcasts than anybody I know. I know he will be giving me reports every week of what's going on. Uh, Zuma, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us. Where else can people find you?
0: Find me on LinkedIn. Um, And if you are looking for more insights about the real estate environment, um, you know, we can check out a lot of our insights on centerscore.com. We publish thought leadership fairly frequently in addition to our weekly podcast. So you can, you can tune into our thoughts there.
1: I appreciate you joining us here. Chris and I, again, joining from London today. Uh, It's been, been been a great conversation. You can check us out on our behind the markets podcast every week. Thanks to our, sound man in the studio, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.